0: Guys, follow with me as I read to you um, 21 verses out of uh, Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6 at verse 1, we'll read through verse 21. You follow in your copies as I read that which is really a very familiar story. Uh, I, I bet you it's familiar. I, I hope it is. Here it goes. Now, Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priest and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the iron men pass on before the ark of the the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord, went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord, following them. The iron men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, And the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. Then he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once, and they came to the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day they marched early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring, a, bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, that endures forever. If you've ever been in a Sunday school class, um, ever taught a Sunday school class, or even even been in one, you know that this story about Joshua and Jericho is a staple. It's um, it's one of those handful of stories that get taught in Sunday School material almost annually. You've got um, you've got the story of Daniel in the lion's den. That's a biggie. Um, you've got the story of uh, Noah and the ark. That's another one. Then you've got um, uh, Joseph in the coat of many colors. That's a biggie, and then then Joshua and Jericho, and you know they even wrote songs about Joshua, and maybe you remember some of the songs that we sang in Sunday school. Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho, you know that thing. But um, just for your future reference, if you ever if you ever do teach these uh, stories again, I, I I'm uh, want to inform you that the story about Daniel is not about Daniel. The story about Noah, it's not about Noah. The the story about Joseph and his coat, uh, that story is not about Joseph. And uh, this story about Joshua and, and Jericho, it's not about Joshua and Jericho. Well, then what is it about? Well, let's see if we can find out. Um, part of my goal is to help you better understand the Old Testament stories that you read at any time. But you got to see that those stories are about something else. Finally, after five chapters, we're 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 ready for the Battle of Jericho. Um, A little swashbuckling uh, military story of human valor. You know, uh, a little, um, my team uh, beat your team because my team is bigger and stronger than your team. Well, guys, um, this story is about none of that. None of that at all. In fact, what this story is is a—it's um, a an extended dramatized parable of um, discussing or illustrating the issue of saving faith. Um, now, guys, let me start like this, you, and I hope this is not insulting to anyone's intelligence. But you do know, don't you, that not all faith is saving faith? In fact, I don't even use that term anymore. I, I, well, from I don't use the term faith. I always use the term saving faith. Because there's a distinction that you've got to make. You know that, don't you? I mean, the, the text that's so often alluded to is, uh, you believe in God, you do well, even the demons believe and tremble. and And demons are not going to occupy heaven, ladies and gentlemen. But they believe. The one that, that I think is even better said is a statement that Jesus makes in Matthew 7. It's perhaps the, the most frightening statement in all of the New Testament, but in um, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not work great works in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And I will say to them, Depart from me. I never knew you. Why? Why, why are, why are they going to be sent away? Well, because, ladies and gentlemen, not all faith is saving faith. You do know that, don't you? S- saving faith is not some vague, ethereal, gossamer notion. Faith is strong stuff. Saving faith is strong stuff, ladies and gentlemen. You know, when the pollsters go out to do their polls about religion in America, a lot of the, the, the responses that go under faith in their polls is not saving faith. It's some kind of vague thing, but it's not saving faith, folks. This is an historical event in in Joshua six, and don't let me miss don't let me miss or confuse you. This is an historical event. This really happened. These walls really did fall down, and even there's some archaeological digs that have kind of confirmed that. But that's uh, this this uh, this really happened. But the value of the story, in in my mind the value of the story, lies in what it tells us about the nature of faith. Saving faith. The the, the real battle here, about which we are discussing this morning, it's not with the Canaanites. The real battle is with God's own people. Uh, All this blowing of trumpets and all of this numerical listings of sevens, which people get really bent out of shape about, none of that was really necessary to knock down a little wall. God was not frantically trying to gather up all of his energy so that he could ultimately destroy Jericho. He could have spoken a word and all of Jericho would have been vaporized. But the real battle, folks, the real battle of Jericho was with the human heart, not with the wall of a city. So, stay with me, and um, we're going to use this story to learn not everything, but a little, about what saving faith looks like. Uh, The nature of saving faith. Um, if If you have saving faith, some of the features of saving faith are going to be illustrated in this story. So if you've got the real thing, listen up, because some of this will be descriptive of you. There's four things that I want to draw to your attention. First of all, the first thing to understand is that is that saving faith is counterintuitive. Do you know what that word means? I mean, it's, it's not that big of a word, but it, counterintuitive simply means it doesn't work like you thought it should work. Things aren't like you think they should be. So it's counterintuitive. Guys, um, left to myself, here's how I would tell you saving faith ought to work. Here's how it ought to work. Uh, good people get rewarded and bad people get punished. And... Um, The way that you determine who's a good people and who's a bad people is that you gotta use a sliding scale, you know, and and factor in the curve. Now you remember what the curve was, don't you? You remember the curve? Oh, the curve. Saved me in many a college course, ladies and gentlemen, the curve. You remember that, don't you? You go take a test in college and you got this big room full of people taking the test. And I'm telling you, you're counting on the curve. And if you find anybody that's gonna be making a hundred, you tell them, "Don't do it," uh, because if 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 the top score in the room is 72, then your 61 doesn't look so bad. But if the top score in the room is 100 and you make a 61, you're in trouble. So if the top score is 72, then my goodness, you're going to get 28 points uh, 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 added to your score, and you're going to end up with an 89. And that's, that's grading on the curve. And, and, and now in the saving faith business, I mean, you know that nobody makes a hundred. So God's grading on the curve. And He's just trying to figure out who's the better of the crowd. And, you know, you got some, you got some 72s in here. But you got some 47s in here too. And then you got a maybe, you know, got a smattering of 61s and, and, um, and, and, and hopefully, once that 28 points gets added to all our scores, we're going to pass. And that's how it ought to work. At least according to me. You know, guys, not every time, but often when I try to make some simple presentation of the gospel to somebody, say they're in my office and I'm just trying to make a simple presentation of the gospel, their first reaction is almost invariably, they look at me and they say, that's all. I mean, I mean, surely there's there's more to it than that. I mean, th- th- that just can't be right. <laughs> because if I understand you correctly, uh, Doctor Young, uh, all you're saying is that uh, all I'm supposed to do is believe. There's, there's got to be a catch here. No, ladies and gentlemen, there's no catch. Because saving faith is counterintuitive here's my this whole story about this military conflict the whole thing's counterintuitive uh, let me let me show you what I mean did you notice verse one it starts off by saying um, that Jericho was shut up inside and out now tell me ladies and gentlemen, doesn't that go without saying I mean you got a city that's being besieged by an army don't you think they'd lock their doors? Don't you think they'd close their windows maybe and make sure nobody could sneak in? What's going on with that little sentence? Guys, it's not so much about how locked up Jericho is, but it's telling you something about how the people view their situation. They look at this and they say, my goodness, nobody's coming in. Nobody's going out. The doors are all locked. The windows are all down. They got them blacked out. You know, how are we ever going to get in there? i mean now if you leave it to me here's what we got to do we got to we got to start now we got to start early we got to start right this minute and we got to build ourselves a whole lot of ladders and uh, we need a, we need a bunch of ladders and we need some catapults if we can find some of those i'm not sure there're many in the air but maybe we can get us a few of those because this city this jericho thing this is impregnable and um, it ain't, I don't know what Josh was thinking, but, but it, this ain't going to happen. Um, just looking at, at all that I'm, I'm looking at, it's, it's, it's certainly going to be an impossible task. And if not impossible, it's certainly unlikely unless we find some ladders someplace. Because this military campaign, ladies and gentlemen, is openly in defiance of every piece of military practice known to man. It's counterintuitive. The whole thing that's going on here it's just no, that's not how it works. You don't do that, you do this. Ladies and gentlemen, the saving or the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ tells me, that I am supposed to lean wholly upon the finished work of Jesus Christ, but wait a minute. What about my performance? I mean, doesn't that factor in anywhere? I mean, I mean, wait, wait, just a second. You you say that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, but I don't get that. Because everything that I know, everything that I think, everything that I believe, everything that I've been taught, all the people that I work with, we all have concluded pretty much the same thing. And the way that it ought to work, it ought to work like this, that the good people get rewarded and the bad people get punished. And and the way that you can tell the difference is because there's a sliding scale and everybody works on the curve, particularly God. You know, I have a friend whose name is R.C. Sproul. Before R.C. became R.C., he was the pastor of evangelism at the First Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. He did evangelism, and he kept records. He kept records, ladies and gentlemen, about the responses of people when he tried to present the gospel to them. You know what he found? This was what he found. This was the record that he found. 98% Ninety-eight percent of the people to whom he spoke thought that the way things worked were pretty much how I just described them. Good people get rewarded, bad people get punished. Sliding scale, great on the curve. I'll be okay. I'm not as bad as that, but I did that. Nobody's perfect. Yet. I be the first to inform you, it doesn't work like that. And if you were here this morning thinking that somehow all of your good behavior is going to be factored in the overall equation, you're mistaken. just as mistaken as people who thought the only way we're going to get inside this city is if we build some ladders. Because saving faith, guys, saving faith is um, its counterintuitive. This... This unorthodox strategy that was dictated to Joshua by the commander of the Lord of hosts, it was contrary. It was contrary to both common sense and to military experience. And everybody on the inside, standing on the, on the walls of Jericho, are laughing themselves silly over these nincompoops walking around the thing. Because that's not the way it's supposed to be done. Saving faith is like that. It's foolishness. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved by it, it's sheer beauty. Only God could have come up with something so beautiful as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the second feature that I want you to notice in the story. It it calls for a good deal of perseverance. That is, saving faith does. I want you to notice the words in, in verse 15. It says, on the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city. Here's the words. In the same manner. You know, this is getting old. This is getting old for six days. I, by the way, Joshua never told them that it was only going to be six days. He didn't say, no, listen, we're going to do this six days. On the seventh day, it's all going to work out. He never told them that. He told them simply to get everything together and you just do what I tell you to march around this thing. They, 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 not, they did not know it was only going to be six days. But but this this is getting pretty old. I mean, re- repeated failure, it didn't happen day one, and it didn't happen day two, and, and uh, you know, there's nothing happening in these six days that we've been walking around this place. But the fact, ladies and gentlemen, that nothing was happening didn't warrant another strategy or, or them giving up on this strategy. You, you must notice that there's not the one, there's not the slightest hint That God is doing anything. There's no cracks that are developing in the walls. There's no bricks that are falling down and they go, oh, 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 it's beginning to happen. Yeah, I got it now. Let's just hang through with this because the whole thing's gonna collapse. There's nothing happening. We're going around and around and around in the same manner over and over again. And about lap nine, I'm pretty much ready to give up on this. I can say at least this, a whole lot of us give up before lap 13 is completed. But saving faith, you know, involves perseverance. We, we are called to endure. Without one piece of an encouragement that says, "This is working." You know, I'm on a diet, and it's not what you call a serious diet. It's it's a Jimmy Young diet. My my diet is that I am cutting out sweets. Now I know my wife tells me that that it um, you're supposed to cut out bread and butter and potato chips. But that's not a part of my diet, that's her diet. My diet, my diet is, my diet is sweets. I I have a downfall with sweets and I've cut out sweets and didn't eat sweets for three weeks. And then you know what, ladies and gentlemen, my pants are just as tight as they were three weeks ago. And I think, this ain't working. You know, and and I'm not willing to give up anything else. And it's been a very heroic and very righteous thing that I've done to make it for three weeks. But I'm going nowhere. So, I mean, might as well get back to my sweets, don't you think? That's what I'm thinking. Guys, God will move in his way and in his time And normally, his time is far slower than mine. I wish that weren't true. I wish I could speed him up. But saving faith, you see, asks us to persevere. The demand on these folks is that they persevere They are not allowed to take matters into their own hands, which we're very good at. They are not allowed to resort to any other method, to take any shortcuts, to give in to their feverish flesh. You know, guys, I I think it's somewhat noteworthy that Scripture, neither Scripture nor Christian experience, do we ever find, or do we rarely find, God giving us a detailed justification for his ways. He rarely explains himself. That is, explains himself in advance. Because to do so would rob us of an opportunity to exercise faith. So saving faith is um It's counterintuitive. And it requires persevering. The third thing that you see here, guys, in terms that's a feature of saving faith, is that it's obedient. Guys, did you know that sometimes the Bible uses the word believe and obey interchangeably? Did you know that? I'm going to read you just one of them. That's all we got time for. This is in John 3.24. Excuse me. 3, 3.36. Excuse me. Jesus says this, and he says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Do you see what Jesus just did? Let me read it again. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Do you see what he did there? He used... Obey as a synonym for believe. Have you ever noticed in the in, in the epistles of Paul how often he, he, he says that the gospel is to be obeyed? Not believed, although he says that too. He says the gospel is something that you obey. In this story, in verses 3 through 5, God gives to Joshua all the instructions as to how things in this battle are to be done. In verses 6 through 11, Joshua then turns around and gives all those instructions uh, to the people. He relays them verbatim. And then in verses 17 through 19, he underscores the priority of obedience. And we're going to see just how important that obedience is in the next chapter, next week. We're going to see what disobedience brings. But you know, ladies and gentlemen, sometimes a life of obedience seems absurd. I mean, who remains pure anymore? You see that story, the tragic story that in our community about, I don't know whether it's 90 girls or is it 90 percent. I think it's 90 girls in Frasier, high school girls who are pregnant or at least have had a baby. There was a picture of one in the paper yesterday and she looked like she was 14. And so here's here's our community's response to how we're going to fix that we got to get a better sex education uh, class. Does anybody in this room think that's going to work? Because my friend, if you do, you're duped. Just because I know more about anatomy, that's going to make me more eager, not less. Ladies and gentlemen, Obedience sometimes seems onerous. And the longer this thing goes on, the harder obedience becomes. But abject obedience is the demand. And oh, that we as God's people realize that nothing honors God more than obedience. Why Why is that? Why do you say that, Jenny? Well, here's why. Because obedience means that not only do I believe in God, but I believe God. Could I tell you something really rot-gut about me? Well, this will wake you up. You want to know something rot-gut about me? I'll tell you. You know what really sounds fun to me? Multiple sex partners. That really sounds fun to me. Sounds like it's a much better plan. And yet God says that human sexuality is to be confined to one spouse within the institution of marriage. Do you believe that, or do you believe you've got a better plan than that? Because if you believe that, then then you will obey. You know what the Bible says it says that i'm supposed to forgive forgive her after what she did to me oh oh i'm sorry you've got a better plan the world tells me i'm supposed to buy my way into happiness and jesus says my life does not consist in the abundance of the possessions that i that i happen to have do you believe that I mean, which one of those do you believe? And that's why I say, ladies and gentlemen, there's nothing that honors God more than obedience. Because obedience says, okay, God, I see what you say. It kind of kind of rubs me a little bit wrong here, you know, because it seems like it should work that way. But not only do I believe in you, I believe you. And so my behavior is going to be brought into conformity with the instructions that I've found here. When I disobey those instructions, oh, you need to read chapter seven. It's going to be ugly. There's one other thing, and I got to quit. The other feature that I wanted to draw your attention to about saving faith is that it is—it's um, Christ-centered. Yeah. Where's all that? Well, it has to do with, once again, that the Ark of the Covenant is in the center of all that's going on here. The, the Ark is mentioned 11 times. In, it's mentioned 9 times in verses 4 through 14. It's the Ark of the Covenant. It's the Ark of the Covenant. It's the Ark of the Covenant. 11 times. Now, now what is that thing? What is the Ark? Well, it's a symbol of God's presence among them. Yes, it is. But it's more than that, ladies and gentlemen that Ark of the Covenant was rightly associated with blood. Because on it, blood was poured once a year. In the Day of Atonement, when sin was reckoned with and dealt with. My friends, this strategy in defeating Jericho is laughable. It's even absurd. But the point that you must not miss in this story is that at the center of everything that is going on is an obedient people who are marching around with a a city with a blood-stained cedar chest right in the middle of their gatherings. It is, it is God's presence in the midst of his people that will make the difference. And it is spilled blood that has in the past and will in the future produce a very significant victory. And then... Once Jericho's walls fall down and the battle is over and the battle is won, once, once that victory is gained, everybody stood still for a minute. They thought about it and they all knew. They all knew that it it wasn't the way I thought it was going to happen, <laughs> no. And um, and that enduring to the end was um, was excruciating. And um, the obedience that he asked for, that was kind of hard at times. We all know that it was his, um, it was God, and His blood-stained Ark that has accomplished our deliverance. You know, guys, Christians talk like that. We talk like this, with just a little bit more detail, but we talk like that. Um, we know that God in Christ and his blood-stained cross has accomplished our salvation. It wasn't the way we thought it was supposed to be or should be. And the persevering got pretty testy at times. And, and the obedience was, was hard. But I will never let go of Christ in Him crucified. That's how saving faith talks. So, is that what you're in possession of this morning? That or something that's vague and ethereal, and wispy, and shallow? and amorphous because that ladies and gentlemen will condemn you so the next time you teach your Sunday school class tell your students about Christ and about saving faith Our Father, I I do pray that you will remind us that Jesus Christ is to be found on every page of this book. He's there. And he's the one. He's the Messiah that has been sent so that people like me might be forgiven. And so we glory not in walls tumbling down. We glory in Christ and him crucified. Might. We see it in, with a, just a little more clarity as a result of our time spent this morning. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.